brethren, we were very grateful that it does seem that God is bringing more of our people back, and I hope you will pray about that and uh, ask God to bring more of His... I ask God regularly, almost every day, to bring more of His faithful, zealous people together. He may not bring everybody together, but to bring more of His faithful and zealous. Some are faithful, but they're old or sick or can't do too much. And I know some like that. It's hard for them to change at that point in their lives. And think of one older lady out west and others who need help and they can't change as quickly. But most of us could change, and many others, thousands are out there who will change before it's all over. Thousands of our ex-worldwide brethren are just out there confused and hurting a lot of them. And when these things start to happen, I can picture literally in my mind, which I've done many times, certain of the students that I taught and the ministers I work with, I won't name their names, I don't want to embarrass them, but I can picture them tossing and turning. They think, wow, these things are really happening now. Maybe Mr. Armstrong was right after all. Maybe Joe Jr. and Mike were not right after all. Wow, I'd better wake up and do something. And finally, many of them will, and many of those brethren, so we need to pray for them. But Satan has tried to divide us, and he certainly has divided the church since Mr. Armstrong's death into over 300 different denominations and little sects and little home churches and every kind of group you can imagine. He is the great divider. Satan wants to divide and, and destroy God's people one way or the other. Turn with me, if you would, back to uh, Revelation chapter 12. You'll notice here, it talks about Christ's birth and how Satan tried to destroy him. And then it says, beginning in verse 7, and war broke out. It suddenly skips ahead hundreds of years to the time of the end. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. This war has not yet happened. One of the false prophets who's anointed himself uh, that way uh, has said the war has already happened. It has not happened. When that happens, brethren, it's going to be a different world. You're going to see men in Europe rise up with a glint in their eye, and things are going to stir, and it's going to become very frightening. That war has not yet occurred, but it will. And there's going to be demons, more absolutely horrifying things taking place, not just over in the Middle East, but here in the United States and all over the world. So the dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan. He's the one who is the dragon, Satan the devil, who deceives the whole world. And if any of you are newer in God's church, please read this again and again in all the other scriptures like 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4, where Satan is the God of this age. He is the God of this present society. They think they're worshiping God when they're actually, many of them, worshiping Satan the devil because he deceives them. But he deceives the whole world. He was cast out to the earth and his angels with him who became demons. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven, Now salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of His Christ have come. For the accuser, notice brethren, the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. Satan is the accuser and he will try to accuse God's children. He will try to accuse God's ministers. He will try to get you to accuse one another to talk about each other, to gossip about each other, to put each other down in every way you can, to divide and confuse. That's what he tries to do. 
and they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to death. In other words, they apparently were tortured, and they would prefer to die than go on. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath, because he knows that he has a short time. When this final battle takes place, the tribulation at that point may be just another few weeks or months away, probably a few months, but a very short time. So Satan is going to be cast down, but he is the accuser of the brethren. He constantly will accuse us, and he will cause us to accuse one another, and he will cause the world to accuse us. As I said, the time is coming when they're going to zero in on us, we who preach the truth, and I'm thankful we have a very wonderful leadership here we have dedicated men who served God for decades, such as Mr. Apartheid and Mr. Ames and Dr. Winnell and Mr. Crockett and others here. I'm very grateful for that. They didn't start out yesterday. They've held in there faithfully for decades and decades and decades. Back in Worldwide, it was not that way. We sent out a lot of young smart alecks, frankly, that were that way. We didn't know that, but I taught some of them, so maybe I'm partly responsible. I didn't fully understand, and Mr. Armstrong didn't understand, but they were... Some of them would start wearing a chain and around their neck and their shirt open and leave church after a 45-minute sermon and go out with their buddies and take off. We had a lot of attitudes like that back in the bad old days, the 1970s. I sometimes talk about the fine 50s when Mr. and Mrs. Armstrong were both alive and in charge. It was a big family. The soaring 60s when we really just grew and grew. The six 70s <laughs> when things began to turn the other way. And the enlightening 80s when we finally realized a little bit more what was happening. And Mr. Armstrong died and the, 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 the apostasy began even in the 1980s. I don't know what we call the 1990s. But at any rate, those things happened. And God is testing, and God is testing His people, and God is testing every one of you in this room, every one of you hearing me. He's testing me. He's testing all of us in so many different ways, and we have to understand that. But Satan will accuse us, and he will try to accuse us to attack one another. So we need to be very careful about letting Satan influence our thoughts and influence our words. Even in the living church of God, uh, in this office, right here in this building, people still gossip too much. They gossip too much in God's church. And here in our own offices, they talk about each other sometimes in a wrong way and put each other down. And they accuse one another. This must stop. We've got to really learn to control this thing utterly and totally, brethren. With this world soon coming to an end... And it really, really is, this society as we now know it, we really do need to hang together or we shall surely hang apart. We've got to love each other, forgive each other. We've got to stand side by side, back to back, so to speak, against the enemy. And we've got to be sure that we love each other so we're willing to do that and are not competing with each other, so ready to catch each other, to put down each other, to fight each other, Years ago, I joked, and these are not horrible things. I don't want any of you to do better than to think of around, going around with long knives like the Muslims. They're not. We're not. But people just cut each other from time to time with their tongue and sound off. And back, several years ago, we had what I called the coffee wars. You know, we had a certain area there in the south of the Midwest where some ladies were going to get a coffee pot 
for the church, the church, uh, you know, uh, potluck afterward. And so they decided they would come together next week and decide who would do what. And instead of coming together the next week, this one lady actually went out with her own money and purchased a coffee pot and brought it. And instead of being happy, the others were just as jealous. They couldn't stand it. And they had a coffee pot war. <laughs> but, you know, it, it's, it's enlightening because sometimes a person is ordained a deacon and they have to say, why didn't I get to be the next deacon? Or a lady gets to be a deaconess. And then, you know, other people feel that this attitude of competition. God is calling us all to a job, brethren, way beyond anything we have now. And one of the leading ministers told me years ago, and it was a very fine saying, he said, no matter what job or position we have now, he was an evangelist and I was an evangelist, and we were talking about that and how human we all are. But he said, no matter what kind of job we have now, he said, the job we're going to have in a few years in God's kingdom is so far greater then anything we had back in this physical life is going to be seem like nothing by comparison. And I really mean that. Some of you ladies here may have a far greater responsibility than some of the top evangelists that are pictured in that picture in the envoy called the, the, the vice president sitting there and so on because some of those guys fell away. And some of you ladies and some of you other men that have been faithful may have a much greater job if each of us does the best we can with what we have to do with, God has awesome opportunities for us. We do not need to compete with one another. Whenever I talk to our ministers in the field about bringing other ministers along, and we're trying to do that a lot more, I try to press upon them, don't be afraid to do this. If you bring along three or four even men and their ministers, we're not going to kick you out and give them your job you know, that's not the point. There are places all, I can start naming them. Dr. Winnell could give you a great big list. All over this country and all over this world, we need more ministers here and there and here and there. We don't need to compete with one another. We've got the whole world before us to reach six and a half billion people. So let's love each other. Hope we all grow. Hope we all make it in every way we possibly can. But we must not gossip. We must not put each other down. We must not skewer each other with our mouths. We've got to be very sure that we stop that as best we can. We won't do it perfectly, but we'd better really grow and make great progress in that direction. So we've got to learn to love each other as Christians. That's the title of my sermon, Love Each Other as Christians. But I'm emphasizing on a certain aspect of it, the way we treat each other, the way we talk about each other today. Turn to Matthew chapter 5. I'm going to be reporting, uh, repeating something that Mr. Uh, Pyle touched on. He said this will often be stated, and he was absolutely right. <laughs> Comes up again very, very quickly here today. Turn back to Matthew, if you, if you would, brethren, chapter 5. The Sermon on the Mount. This is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, as we call it. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. And seeing the multitudes, Christ went up to mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. And then he opened his mouth and taught them, his disciples, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Not kingdom in heaven. There's the bank of Morgan. Mr. Morgan didn't swallow his piggy bank. The bank of Morgan is not in his tummy. It's the kingdom of heaven. It belongs to heaven. It will be set up on this earth under Jesus Christ. But the poor in spirit... 
Does that mean we're spiritually impoverished? Again, you have to understand these Hebrew expressions and the commentaries explain it means those who recognize how weak they are in comparison to God. If you recognize your own nothingness and you come down, you say, God, I'm not worth anything. I have so little power. You're my father. Everything comes from you. And you have that attitude. Then you will be in the kingdom of God if you follow through on that, of course. Blessed are those who mourn. Again, we have millions of men and women dying all over, people butchering each other in the Middle East and elsewhere. Does that mean all those people are going to automatically be in God's kingdom? No, they're not called yet. So again, it's talking spiritually. Those who mourn spiritually, those who sigh and cry for the abominations of Israel, as it says back in Ezekiel and other attitudes like that, where they're really sorry about their own sins and sorry about this world and how rotten it's getting. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek. And the meek, as Mr. Pyle explained, are not weak. They are humble. They are teachable. But they are surrendered to the will of God in faith. For they shall inherit the earth. They're not going up to heaven, but they shall inherit the earth. You know, we'll get to see our Father, by the way. I think we may make some trips to heaven before the end of the millennium. That's another topic, but that's not our reward. The reward is eventually heaven will come down to earth. The, of course, the new, new city, the holy city, the new Jerusalem. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled if you hunger and thirst for it. Blessed are the merciful. Are you merciful toward others in the way you treat them? Do you forgive them? Do you help them? Do you talk good about them or do you talk bad about them? Are you merciful in the way you treat your neighbor, in the way you talk about your brother in the church? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. So all these things enter in to what we're going to talk about today, and we need to develop those attitudes as Christ goes on throughout this entire Sermon on the Mount. Let's turn, though, getting specific, back to Leviticus chapter 19. Here is the mind of God as it was revealed, what we call the Old Testament. Christ inspired this, as we know. Leviticus, the book of Leviticus, chapter 19, and beginning in verse 16. Here, God tells us, You shall not go about as a talebearer among your people. You're not to go say, Did you hear that? Have you heard about so-and-so? He made this mistake. Blah, 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 blah. You're not to do that. Do not go about as a talebearer among your people. You shall not take a stand against the life of your neighbor. I am the ever-living one. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. Some people may say, well, I'll be careful not say anything, but in my heart I'm still going to resent somebody. I'm going to carry this grudge. I'm not going to forgive him. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. That's not wrong. Rebuke him in love. Say, George, John, you, you hurt me because you did this or that or whatever. And talk to him about it in love. As he said, let's work this out. I, I want to come to you about it, not someone else. I'm not going to gossip about you. I just want you to realize you're hurting people by what you're doing or whatever you want to say in a loving way, though. Do it in a right way, a humble way. You shall not take vengeance and bear any grudge against the children of your people. So you're not to try to get even, as we know the Bible tells us over and over. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the ever-living one, Yahweh, which means the eternal, the ever-living one. 
This is the gold, this is the uh, special statement, not the golden rule, but uh, in a sense that you shall love your neighbors yourself in the Old Testament. Christ gave that way back here long before he gave it when he came in the human flesh. Back here in Leviticus 19, verse 18. So he tells us to love our neighbor as ourself. And if we really meditate on that one thing, brethren, and I mean this as we go through the sermon, just think about it. Meditate just on that one thing. How would you want your neighbor to treat you? How would you want your neighbor to talk about you? And then you try to treat him the same way. I know back in the earlier church, uh, and certainly this happened in, in, in Corinth. If you read 1 Corinthians, they were having their battles way back there. And it wasn't a pagan church. It was the church of God. But people sometimes talk about each other and have wars over this or that or misunderstandings or whatever. And Paul says, I, I beseech you to speak the same thing. They had different approaches and different attitudes. Some were saying, I'm a Peter and I'm a Paul, and they were competing and all kinds of things back there. Human nature. I was talking about it to my wife, and I said, well, we still have human nature. <laughs> and wherever you go in this world, you find human nature. So don't think it's a shock, but we will have it, and we do have it. And we've got to continue to fight it until the day we die. But if you have that attitude to love your neighbor as yourself, try to get inside your neighbor's head the best you can and don't try to fully understand him because you can't, but at least you can try to understand his life, his needs, his hopes and his dreams and realize he has his hopes and his dreams and try to help him fulfill those hopes and dreams and try not to put him down. I remember when I was a young kid and smart aleck teenager, sometimes I would be in some building or some social occasion, maybe even with my mother. And these old ladies would kind of be peering like that. They, boy, they're haughty and they're kind of mean the way they look. And now as I look back on the way they were looking, they were nearsighted. <laughs> they were trying to see. <laughs> now that I'm older and have things, I realize these older people kind of go like that. You know, they're, they're a little stiff in their body and, and they're trying to see and know what's going on. And young people take that as they're kind of cold or whatever. Sometimes they're unsure of themselves. And, and, but, you know, all kinds of strange things older people do, as I know, used to notice and didn't understand because I was a kid. You're judging because you don't fully understand the other person. And we've got to think about that. Love your neighbor as yourself. Try to understand, but even if you don't fully understand, still think, how would I want him to treat me, you know, in a similar situation? And then treat him or her the same way. I preached on this a number of times, this one phrase, but this comes to mind and I hope I can come back to it again and again to you and in my own life. I'm trying to preach to myself on that. What would Jesus really do? My first sermon was just repeating the world, what would Jesus do? But I think it's good to put, what would Jesus really do? Because the world doesn't know that, of course. They say, what would Jesus do? And then they imagine what he would do. And they usually don't know what he would do because they don't really study this book. They're not feeding on Christ to see what he really did do. And so they don't understand. What would Jesus really do? Well, he would keep the seventh-day Sabbath. We all understand that because that's what he did during all his earthly lifetime. And Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And Christ is the one who gave the, the Sabbath commandment. He's the one who said, I'm the God who led you out of the land of Israel, out of Egypt, I should say. He was the one speaking for God the Father. That rock was Christ. 
1 Corinthians 10, verse 4. He was the God of the Old Testament. So we can see what he would do from a thousand different points of view, of course, if you studied the whole Bible. What would Jesus really do? And try to think about that in any kind of situation. What would Jesus say? How would he say it? Would he say it with a kind of a put-down attitude? Or what would he do? And I need to do that better. And you need to do that better. And all of us do if we're going to be in God's kingdom. So we've got to think about that a lot. Forgive each other. Forgive the humanity of the other person. Yes, he's human. Yes, he did something bad, perhaps, or obstreperous. But is it your job to put him down or to rush down the hall or to rush across town or to get on the phone? Did you hear that or did you know about so-and-so? He'd made some wrong remark, or maybe he said a cuss word, or he drank a little too much, or you caught him smoking a half a cigarette. He's having a hard time quitting that. Big deal! Millions are out here slaughtering each other, and we're concerned about some maybe kid that comes in here with long hair or something. Big deal! We're not advocating long hair. We're just saying, let's get our perspective and have the mind of God about those things. And not make a mountain out of a molehill when the whole world's about to come to an end. And if some new person or some kid comes in and he's doing something that's not perfect, it's not our job to get all buggy about that. We're so self-righteous and we've got to measure every hair, every part of a woman's dress or everything a kid says or does or something. We have new people. We have young people. And they're human. People have humanity. Love them. Forgive them. Work with them, help them, encourage them, bring them along. This is what we've got to do. And not to talk about them or put them down or constantly be evaluating them in that way. God, The Bible says love covers a multitude of sins. You know, it really does. And that's what God does or we wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be alive if God smashed me down for what I have done in the past and may still do once in a while on my own mind or things I say or so on. When I say those things, I don't want you to think that I'm the midnight rapist, you know. As I said, Mr. Party and I are getting old enough, we don't do those things. <laughs> well, I shouldn't even kid about that. My wife says as though we might be raping when well, we never did and never will. But anyway, we're not out some uh, criminal at night, and uh, but we do have human nature. And God knows that, and I know that, and it's better that I evaluate myself as I compare myself with Christ. And when I do that, I fall short. And you fall short when we evaluate ourselves in that way, comparing with Christ. Turn to James, the third chapter, brethren. James, chapter 3, if you would. And let's begin reading here in this very famous chapter about the tongue. I won't read all of it, part of it. I'd like to read it all, but we want to cover more scriptures today. James 3, in verse 5, he says, The tongue is a little member. You know, your tongue doesn't take up a lot of room in your body and boasts great things. I remember one young man that became an elder, which he should not have been, and I took him on a sermonette down to San Diego years ago. And all the way down to San Diego and all the way back from Pasadena, he was bragging about how great he was and how strong he was and this and that. Oh, no. Well, later on, of course, he had to be kicked out for adultery and various other things, but he thought he was a great one. The tongue boasts many things. Even so, the tongue is a little member, boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity, a whole world of sin just in this little member. Did you hear that? Let's go catch this guy. Let's go put this guy down. 
I remember when my wife and I were first transferred to Big Sandy, where I was to be deputy chancellor there for a few years, one of the leading women, whom I will not identify, but called my wife or asked her in person and said, let's have a really old, good old-fashioned gossip session. <laughs> let's have a good old gossip session. And Cheryl told me later, she said, well, she said, no, I'm busy. I made some excuse, and this person was big gossip. And, of course, all through that area we had people. And there was an attitude around the college at that time about the fat cats on faculty row because the ministers and teachers there had houses around the lake and some of the brethren didn't have as nice houses. So there was a sense of resentment. And then some of the normal brethren, the average brethren, would say, and I had five or seven tell me this and one, well, we've seen evangelists come and we've seen evangelists go and we just watch. Uh, kind of a sarcastic attitude. You just guys are all here and there. We don't have to pay attention to you because we've seen this person make mistakes and that or get transferred. You know, kind of an attitude to disrespect, not a deep respect for the office because by that time there had been some things done that were bad and were out and so on. But it bred a very sarcastic kind of a put-down attitude which hurt the whole church of God, of course. And uh, that's that's sad. Anyway... The tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. For every kind of beast and bird, reptile creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no man can tame the tongue. And that's true. You don't perfectly do it, but you sure better try or you won't be in God's kingdom. I mean that. You'd better try hard. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our God and Father. You know, we pray, oh God, we love you, want to serve you, and then, but blah, 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 against some other person, you see. And with it, we curse men who've been made in the similitude of God. Every man, woman, and child on this earth is made in the image of God. And it's good to kind of think about that each morning. I don't always do that either, but I try to as I thank God. I start out asking, thanking God for that He has made the earth and this beautiful universe. And then secondly, that he has made us human beings, all the sons and daughters of men in his image, in his image to someday be in his very family and bear his name. If you sort of start out the day with that thought in your mind, we're made in God's image to be in his full family, to bear his name. It kind of gives you a big picture just as you start to think about the new day. So we curse men out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? No, spring doesn't do that. Can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear fruits, figs? Thus no spring can yield both salt water and fresh. You see, we ought to bear only and to bring forth only good things out of our mouth like a clean spring would do. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness. Here it is again, meek. Meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy. Now let's read all the rest of this passage here, brethren. It's very important as it ties into the tongue. If you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. Some have bitter envy and so they resent those who are made deacons or elders or who are already deacons or elders or get something they don't get or something because of that bitter envy and resentment. 
This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing will be there. I think of a situation several years ago when some that I had really loved profoundly, but were stirred up by relatives and turned on me because they wanted my job. And I, I, I was so sorry. I didn't ever try to just be their boss in that sense. I started the work before they came with us and so on. But there's just this attitude, you know. And uh, if, if we're not in charge or we're not the queen bee or something, we're going to get bitter. We're going to get resentful. Where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing will be there. Just we talk, we gossip, we plan, we plot. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure. We want to want a job if we want it in order to serve. And we ought to tell God, Father, if we're not really humble enough and capable enough to be a deacon or a deaconess or an elder, don't put us there. You may not believe this, but I have prayed to God many times. I don't have a death wish, by the way. I'm very happy. I love my wife, and I'm so grateful for her and my children, my family, and all of you. But I tell God every now and then, Father, if you want me to die before the work finishes, your will and not my will be done. Because I've already got 77 wonderful years and two wonderful wives and six children and nine grandchildren and two great-granddaughters that are beautiful. And I've had everything. I don't need more. But I would like to remain alive more to finish the work. But if I can't do it the best, if there's some outstanding young Elijah waiting in the wings somewhere, it may be better that God brings such a person along. I'm not going to fight that. I will fight some guy that rises up and tries to fight me in a wrong way. A true Elijah or Elisha would not do that. They would not be hatching some political plot, if you follow me. I could perceive that very quickly. But where envy and self-seeking exist, every evil thing will be there. And talk and gossip, you know, and put down comments made and so on. We found that overseas, that one man had been over there putting me down and calling me a crook and a liar and over and over. And those people finally realized that that was all wrong. And now they, many of them want to be with us. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. We've got to be that our wisdom is pure, not just to get what we want when we want it, but to have the attitude, sincerely have the attitude to Christ, which none of us have perfectly, but strive for it, not my will, but thine be done, and really mean that, and everything we think and say and do. That's what God wants. Now, the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. We should try to make peace, not stir up enmity, not make a remark to some. Let's say, well, if I can put down this woman in front of this other woman, then this woman will be my friend because I put down this other woman and therefore that exalts me, you see, by gossiping about this other, this third person. No, don't do that. That's not the way to make friends. That's not the way to promote yourself. I remember vividly one young man in the ministry, uh, I'm not trying to identify these people, but uh, Mr. Apartheid may know who I'm talking about or possibly one or two others, but he's not a gossip, so he probably won't tell you. <laughs> but he, he had a literal black book. I'm not kidding. The book was really a black book. And in it, he kept the sins of leading ministers so that when I became his boss, 
during the crisis of 79 that he was telling me about so-and-so did this and did you know one of his daughters got pregnant and ran off and did you know his son was a homosexual and did you know this and that? He had the black stuff on everybody around. He thought if he could put them down, that would exalt him. But of course, when I heard this litany from him from time to time, my luckily I matured enough spiritually. I could say, well, if he's doing that to them, when he gets his chance, he will also do that to me. He will also do that to me. Well, eventually, of course, he died prematurely and before that was put out of the church and all kinds of things went wrong. He wasn't put out by me, by the way. Uh, he put himself out in a sense. But anyway, you have to understand. But the wisdom that is from above is pure. So we've got to have a pure attitude in the way we think and talk and try to ask God to guide our thoughts and guide our words. Remember that expression, uh, I don't have that in my notes, but I'll give you this. Uh, May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. I think that's the end of Psalm 19 or Psalm 34 in, the, in uh, David's writings. Uh, so that's it. We've got to think of ourselves as a family in God's church. And we're going to be a potential family or a potential family of God himself. Do we want to begin to put down and gossip and make bad remarks about members of the family that we're going to have to live with and love and interact with throughout all eternity? Where do we think we're going to get ahead by that kind of behavior? By putting people down in that particular way. So we've got to understand that. We must learn to love. We must learn to forgive, to really forgive. And we must learn to stop competing and stop lusting after bigger offices and about this or that rather than saying, God, you take care of it. You put me up if you want me up in some bigger job or some greater opportunity. Not my will, but yours be done. And just try to serve the best you can. And then if God works it out that you're put somewhere like that, you can thank Him for it knowing you didn't uh, manipulate it. You didn't pull a lot of political stuff to try to get yourself into it. God hates gossip. I'll repeat that. God hates gossip and dissension. And so we have to really understand that. And I hope that we can realize that just like that woman was telling my wife, let's have a good old gossip session. And we found that a lot of them were doing that. Uh, and that's, that's terribly wrong. You didn't begin to put down others and you begin to put down those in authority that God has put there in spite of human nature. But then you're attacking not just the person, but without realizing it, you're attacking an office. A person has an office. Notice what Jude said, the next to the last book in your New Testament. Jude, beginning in verse 7, he talks about Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in similar matter to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh. Of course, he used the term sodomites elsewhere. That's where homosexuality became very prominent, Sodom and Gomorrah are set forth as an example. Here is the mind of God, what God thinks of that behavior, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Likewise, these dreamers, I think the King James has these filthy dreamers, defile the flesh, reject authority. Notice the attitude that the devil brings in people. They reject authority and speak evil of dignitaries. Well, we've seen evangelists come and go, and we don't need to get too excited about anybody, about anything. We're all about the same, and we all have our opinions. Yeah, we do. But if there is someone in an office, you can respect the office, 
and at least have an open mind and prove whether the man says what the man says is true and have a good attitude and not a bad attitude until proven otherwise. Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, even against the devil himself, but said, The Lord rebuke you. He was careful even reviling Satan the devil. Why? Because Satan had an office and was not yet removed from that office. But these speak evil of whatever they do not know, and whatever they know naturally like brute beasts, and these things they corrupt themselves. Woe to them, for they have gone on the way of Cain. They have run greedily in the air of Balaam for profit, and they have perished in the rebellion of Korah. Remember how Korah went around stirring people up? Well, old Moses, you know, he takes too much on himself, and he's making all these decisions, and we're all the same, we're all priests. And he got 250 mighty men, famous men of the nation of Israel, leading men. If you had an army, it would have been the colonels and the brigadier generals, the leading men. 250 of them came. Very impressive. Was God impressed? No, he caused them all to fall, fall down in a pit and swallow them up. And you could hear their screams as they descended of this great big chasm that God opened in the earth to swallow them up. In the rebellion of Korah, because they got this sassy, saucy, cynical, sarcastic attitude. Well, we're all the same, and we don't need to listen to those leaders. Moses and Aaron, they're no better than we are. That's the attitude that begins to grow. That's the attitude that caused the rebellion on the East Coast back in 1974, because we had one smart aleck who was himself an adulterer and a liar and a thief stirring others up. And so 30 ministers, it was 30 ministers and about 3,000 brethren, all left with this sarcastic, cynical attitude. And I talked to some of those guys, and I saw that attitude. I didn't realize it would go that far. I would have landed on them with both feet sooner if I had understood it at the time. But that attitude leads to some very, very bad things, brethren, and they rebelled against Mr. Armstrong. Was Mr. Armstrong perfect? No, was Mr. Armstrong dealing with a particular problem as quickly and powerful as he should have been at that time? Maybe not. He did later. But they were not waiting on God. They're saying, he is not dealing with this. We're going to take this into our own hands. We see some corruption. We're out of here. And we're going to split God's church over this corruption that we behold. It wasn't something Mr. Armstrong was doing, but he wasn't uh, cracking down on someone else who's doing certain things. Turn back to Colossians, the third chapter, brethren. Colossians chapter 3, if you would. And let's begin here in verse 12. Colossians 3, verse 12. Paul writes, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, tender mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering. Don't get upset so quick and blow your top or gossip about others if you don't get your way, or you disagree, or catch them doing something. Long-suffering, bearing with one another. Understand the humanity of this other human being. They're human. They're not perfect, but you're not perfect either. And I'm not perfect. What if I make a mistake? You say, well, Rod Meredith's not perfect. Well, I figured that out a long time ago, and my wife figured that out from the very first month of our marriage might have taken her a few days, I don't know, <laughs> a few hours. <laughs> I'm not perfect. Nobody's perfect. 
There's only been one perfect human being on the earth. His name is Jesus Christ. We have to really understand that. But we've got to have long-suffering, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, you also must do. If you want to be forgiven by God, you forgive each other. Forgive each other. Have mercy to each other. Don't try to put each other down. Smash each other with your mouth. But above all these things, put on love. Love, of course, is worship and adoration and obedience to God and kindness and warmth and outflowing concern towards your fellow man. Outflowing concern. Put on love which is the bond of perfection. That's what we've got to have and just be loaded with that. That's the main thing we should strive to have with all our heart and all our mind. Turn back at this point to Matthew chapter 12, brethren. Matthew now again, but this time chapter 12. I want to begin reading here in verse 34. And Jesus said, talking to the Pharisees and religious leaders of that time, brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. When you hear someone like this guy that I did who had his black book, well, did you know about so-and-so, and did you hear about his children, and did you hear about him, and he did this and that, and his children did that, and look at this, 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 this. Out of the, you think, what is he thinking? What's his motive in telling me all this garbage about this other minister, you see? Out of the abundance of the heart, this man was evil. He was constantly plotting and planning and wanting to exalt himself and put others down by climbing up the ladder over their broken or dead bodies, so to speak. If he could destroy them with his mouth, he thought he could climb higher by that process. And that's what happened to him, of course, instead. He fell into the pit which he had dug, as God tells us in Proverbs. A bad guy will dig a pit, and then he will fall into his own pit. (laughs) And that often happens. So, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. When someone's gossiping and gossiping, you know that he probably has some very wrong attitude, or he wouldn't do that. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth good things. And an evil man, out of the evil treasure, brings forth evil things. So if you're constantly hearing bad things, then something's going on, and it's not something good. But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. Every idle word, brethren. Please think about that. If you just blat off accusations and put-downs, God is watching. God hears every word that we utter. He frankly knows every thought that we think, and He is judging us, monitoring us, not trying just to catch us, but to see. And please think about this, brethren, you brethren all over the world. Please think about this. God is reproducing Himself God is reproducing and bringing into fruition kings and priests to help bring peace on this earth between nations and humans. And as He fashions and molds us and works with us toward that, you see, and He sees that some of us are trying to put down one another, accuse one another, catch one another, climb over the dead bodies of one another, so to speak, to get ahead, 
Is that the kind of king or priest that he wants in his spirit family ruling the world and bringing peace to the world and kindness and love and forgiveness throughout all eternity? Of course not. He can't have that kind of attitude in his family. If you learn to think of it that way, it helps you. Now, I want to mention something here, lest someone misunderstands. Once in a while, we will change some of you here in the office, let's say, in your job. We will transfer you over here, or we will put you up here, or occasionally we will put you down here to a lesser job. We won't be putting you on the rack and stretching your body (laughs) or torturing you, but we might put you to a lesser job. And I've had that happen to me several times. I'm not complaining or bragging one another, but a lot of you know that. I've been put down in various ways and put up in various ways over the years. In 58 years in God's work now since my student days, I've experienced both. I remember when Mr. Armstrong was putting me down to a lesser job about the second time he did it. He says, well, Rod, he says, I I sympathize with you. He said, it's a lot easier to go up than to go down. And he says, now I know you're being put in lesser jobs. He kind of felt bad, but he thought he should do that because I was being accused of various things. The ones who accused me, of course, later were kicked out themselves. But at any rate, uh, I had to be patient. And did I need to learn some lessons along the way to teach me greater humility, maybe for what I'm doing now? Probably Probably Rod looked, uh, God looked down and he says, well, Rod Meredith, maybe he's not as bad as he's been made out to be, but it's good that I kind of uh, push his face in the mud once in a while like my friends used to do. And then we used to, the new guys came in the neighborhood, you know, and we'd push their face in the mud. Or uh, when I moved in, we'd, we'd have snow, you know, and we'd push the guy's face in the, in the snow and little boys pick on each other. <laughs> and uh, he, he kind of humbles us. God has ways of humbling us to teach us how weak we are. So he allows that to happen to teach us lessons for all eternity. So I had to be patient and humble. Was I patient and humble perfectly? No, I was never patient and humble perfectly, but I tried. And so all of us have to learn to do that. It's good to be brought down occasionally for our own good. Sometimes God brings us down physically. Sometimes God causes things to happen to us. And if I just have a bad headache or I've eaten too much ice cream and get a sinus headache, I don't say, well, God is smashing me. I'm not paranoid. But if a whole series of things start happening to me and I have terrible health problems and maybe an accident and various other things, then the light goes on in the back of my brain. I think God has a message for me. (laughs) I want to learn what lesson he wants me to learn. And when I understand it that way, I always things always get better. And he may keep thinking, causing bad things to happen unless the light goes on in my brain and I realize God rebukes and chastens every son he loves. He will let us have an accident literally with our car or big gash or break our arm or do something bad or something. And then if we don't humble ourselves or learn from that, then maybe something worse will happen and something worse till pretty soon we realize God is allowing a series of things to happen. It's not normal. You have to be perceptive. As I say, every little headache is not God's punishment. And every time your child breaks his arm, that's not punishment. That's just a little boy riding around climbing over, climbing up in the tree too much or whatever. So you want to be perceptive. But learn the lessons God wants you to learn and try to ask God to humble you and to teach you so that you can be humble enough to help others later in humility and not be vain and trying to exalt yourself, but to be a humble servant of Jesus Christ, to love people, to forgive people as you have had to be forgiven and to help them and build them up and not tear them down by doing something to them physically or politically or with your tongue. 
trying to destroy them and belittle them and put them down. But sometimes we will talk about some of you in an executive meeting and we will say, well, so-and-so doesn't really fit here, so we will change him over here. Or in a ministerial meeting, we will have to say, well, someone's doing this or committing adultery, and we want to check it out before we kick them out. Or they're a habitual drunkard, they're drinking all the time, or they're a thief. or You know what I mean. That is not idle gossip. Do you understand the difference? That is not idle gossip. That is counsel, and multitude of counsel, there is wisdom. And so we have to talk about to be sure that we get all the facts and make the right decision. But even in that, even in that, we who are ministers have got to be careful that we're not just dwelling on those things and trying to look for the bad, but that we're just trying to do it as God's servants to find the real truth so we can help straighten out the situation. For every idle word men may speak, they will give account in the day of judgment. You will, I will, all of us will, brethren, around the world. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. If you lie about others, if you put them down, if you slander them, or if you tear them down like this man with this black book to try to climb over their dead bodies, so to speak, God is watching. God is aware. God is going to deal with you powerfully in time. Am I trying to frighten you? Yes, I would like to frighten you a little bit. So you can wake up. Because He will deal with you. For your good though. He's not a monster. But to help you wake up before it's too late. He can't let you in in His kingdom forever. With that kind of an attitude. That kind of approach. Alright. Let's turn now to Proverbs if you would. Chapter 15. Back to the book of Proverbs. Chapter 15. And see what God says here. Of course I could bring in a hundred scriptures on this whole topic. As you know. As I got to looking. I thought wow. This one, this one, this one, this one. So you have to kind of narrow it down because I don't want to read you a whole... You could get a concordance. We need to get at certain key ones and explain the Scriptures to you so you know what to do about it. In Proverbs chapter 15, beginning verse 1, A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. We've got to be careful how we talk to people, not to offend them and hurt them. The tongue of the wise uses knowledge rightly. Do you know some knowledge about someone? Use it rightly. Don't use it to hurt them or accuse them or skewer them or destroy them. If you have to come to the ministry, something serious is going on, and you sincerely feel the ministry needs to know to help these people wake up, they won't listen to you or whatever, that's different. But be careful how you use knowledge. But the mouth of fools pours forth foolishness. The eyes of the ever-living one are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. And my brethren, God is watching you, and He's watching me. And He knows everything that we're doing all the time. doesn't make any difference whether we're in the bathroom, and, you know, if I'm in the bathroom and stub my toe and cuss, and no one else is there. No one else is there. God is there. Christ is there. Angels are there, perhaps. You know what I mean? Just think about it. I don't care where you are and what you're doing. I'm being real plain. Our lives are in God's hands. In Him we live and move and have our being. And we want to reflect Jesus Christ all the time in every situation, in everything we think and say and do. And none of us does that perfectly, but that should be our goal, to let Christ live in us through His Spirit. 
So we've got to try to do that in every phase and facet of our lives at all times. I don't care if we're on a desert island. You know, we're all out in the sea and no one else is there. God is there. Christ is there. The angels are there. When Paul was floating for a night and a day in the deep, as he said, probably in the Mediterranean Sea, I take it, he was shipwrecked or something and clinging on to a log or something floating around. As I said, maybe he was looking up to the sky once in a while and saying, well, God, you're up there and I'm down here and when are you going to deliver me? Or is this my time to, to die? He might have thought that for a while. But I'm sure Paul was very aware that God was right there watching him, working with him, humbling him, teaching him lessons. Not that he did it for that reason, but allowed it to happen at least. He could have just sent an angel and whisked Paul away without him floating around there for 36 hours. I'm sure that was a trial. Those 36 hours might have seemed like two years, you know, when you're all alone floating around and, you know, the sun goes down and it's dark and there you are floating around. Ooh, I feel something. Is that a shark or, you know, (laughs) what's going on? And then the sun comes up the next day and you're still floating around. Well, God, I'm your servant. Don't you know I'm an apostle? I'm an apostle. Listen to me. (laughs) No answer. (laughs) Finally, after 36 hours, you get an answer and God delivers you. But it was a humbling process that God allowed, at least. We don't know, but God allowed that to happen to Paul many times. When he was beaten with whips by the Jews five times, 40 lashes minus one, and then by the Gentiles many times, innumerable lashes, where his back was just a a mass of blood and welts, took him days to heal. And finally, when it was time to die, as you know, he said, I am ready. I'm ready. I finished the course. I just as soon go and be with Christ. I've had enough of this stuff. (laughs) Perhaps he thought a little bit of that, plus realized he'd finished his job, of course, which is the big thing. But he was probably 65, 67 years old by every indication when he died. He was not an old man, but God allowed him to go to sleep after all those years of service. And he had to trust God and have the right attitude in all these trials. So... The eyes of the eternal are in every place. He was watching Paul. He knew Paul wasn't out there floating around cussing at God. Where are you? And all this kind of attitude. He had a right attitude. He said, Father, help me. Show me what's your will in this. Is there something you want me to do? Some lesson you want me to learn? Whatever. He's keeping watch on the evil and the good. He hears our words. He sees what we do day and night and night and day. Philippians. Turn to chapter 4, if you would, in the book of Philippians now, back to the New Testament. Philippians chapter 4, and uh, I'm going to begin reading here in uh, verse 1. Just to read several verses in this wonderful chapter. Paul writing to these wonderful Christians who had helped him and supported him more than any other church. He said in chapter 4, Therefore, my beloved and long-for brethren, my joy and crown, they had sent him money again and again, even when other churches did not. So stand fast in the Lord, beloved. I implore Euodia and I implore Sintish or Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Now, these two ladies might have had a little set to. The commentaries indicate the Greek wording. They, they might have had a little competition between them. So, you know, let's, let's be of the same mind in the Lord, uh, love each other, forgive each other, whatever it was. Paul is telling them, get over it, get over it, move on, forgive each other, no big deal. And I urge you also, true companion, help those women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. 
Is your name in the book of life? I hope it is if you've been baptized. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Did Paul get all buggy and say, well, God's not fair. God's not fair. And here I am in prison. No, he said, rejoice. And he had a ball and chain, a Greek iron ball solder between his ankles. And when he went to the bathroom, he had to go clunk, 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 and just scrape this big iron ball across the way, and a Roman soldier was outside guarding him. You don't hear Paul complaining. He said, rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Yes, he's watching us. He's very close at all times. He will come soon. And some of us go to sleep in the next few years, then that will be Christ coming for us, in that sense, we may not all live until he comes back as king of kings. Be anxious for nothing. Don't be just, oh, well, what's going to happen? I'm gonna, everything's got to be perfect or I'm going to get upset. No, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. Supplication means repeated heartfelt prayers. Oh, God, help me, clean me up, scrub me out, fashion me, mold me, lead me, teach me. Crying out to God over and over. That's what Paul did. In supplication and prayer with thanksgiving. And as you pray, always thank God for the good things. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding. This is a beautiful verse, isn't it? The peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. I've told you the story about my friend Jimmy Porter. His uh, his mother was my sister, Mrs. Ames' violin teacher. She was the best violin teacher for over 100 miles around, so people came all around from even bigger cities to get lessons from Mrs. Porter. But after I'd been, uh, Jimmy knew me real well, and we shared all kinds of things, and after I'd been in college for a year or two, I went back home to Joplin and was with some of my friends there chatting, during the summer and going over. And after I'd been there a few days, I don't remember when it was, but it was the day I arrived. He said, Rod, he said, you've, you've found it, haven't you? He said, you've figured out whatever it is. Because he knew I was longing and asking, why are we alive? What's going on? And the guys would, some of them get drunk, and they would then sometimes ask me what's going on because I was hearing Mr. Armstrong, and I knew more than they did. But they could see I was seeking to understand the purpose. He said, you found it. I said, yeah. And I really had a peace of mind. He says, well, you look like you're just settled now. And that's true. I had the peace of mind. I can't say the perfect peace of mind then, but I had a lot of it. And I, he could sense that when I was back in high school and junior college, I was studying philosophy. and say, what's going on? I need to understand. I need to understand. Now I had a peace because I did understand. I know why I'm here. I know where I'm going. And I know how to get there. And so do most of you. The peace of mind which passes all understanding. And brethren, as these things start happening, and some of our friends in the world are actually, their houses are burned down. And we had some friends who owned this cabin out there that we used to go to that they let us use. It was not my cabin. As one guy accused me, I've never owned a cabin. But uh, we got a letter from her the other day, and the cabin had not burned down. Their, their house was spared up at, up at Big Bear where a lot of them were burned down. But at any rate... Uh, God watches over us, and some of our friends have houses burned down, and and they're sick, or their 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 children die of the immersive springs around, and disease epidemics kill and kill and kill, and finally terrible other things happen, and we have a sense of protection and peace. We will have the peace of God, which passes all understanding, and they won't have that; they won't know. 
Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report. Not, did you hear about this bad thing? No. Whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you've learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do. And the God of peace will be with you. You'll have a lot of peace if you learn to do that. To think in a positive way about things, not always negatively. Well, the work is not growing as fast. Or this minister made this mistake. Or this deacon acts too uh, smart of it. Or he thinks he's a big shot. Or whatever it is. Do we have any deacons that think they're big shots? Probably we used to have the super deacons back in Worldwide, you know, the little old lady pulling the parking lot. Well, do you know where you're parking? You're parking in the ministerial section. You better park over there. No, you let the old lady alone. <laughs> if she's parked in the ministerial section, the ministers can move, <laughs> you know, if there is a ministerial section. But we had some super deacons who were too arrogant in the way they treated others. And... uh we joked about that. We had super elders and super ministers and some super members, too, who were too, too judgmental and uh, so on, you know. Human nature. Human nature is everywhere. But we all got to understand that and try to repent of it. But we need to think not on the negative things, but on the positive things. Is the church as a whole helping tens of thousands of people learn about the kingdom of God, the coming government of God on the earth? Yes, indirectly, millions as Mr. Pilot has reported, we've reached about over 13 million people over the last few years in the program. And we're reaching increasing millions through the program and through the Internet and other ways. And we're increasing, increasing numbers of tens of thousands through our magazine and through our Internet and through the wonderful Bible study course and all the rest of it. Have we had some fine, wonderful men in the work who are not perfect but have done wonderful jobs and they're outstanding? Yes, Mr. John O'Gwen wrote that study course and his work lives on, still helping, giving, serving tens of thousands of people all over the earth, even now being helped by what he did. The work Mr. Carl Manair did in helping establish church administration and then turning right around after the crisis and coming back down and setting up CAD on my glass uh, table in the breakfast room. That was the church administration department for several weeks. And Dorothy was in the kitchen with my wife helping serve the people who were coming and going and getting snacks and keeping us all alive and helping answer phones and so on. We got going again all over. We've had wonderful men, and now we have a wonderful director of church administration, Mr. Dr. Winnale, sitting here, and he doesn't politic, and he doesn't uh, whine and complain about things and not trying to catch people and put them down. And does he kiss up to me and agree with everything I say? No. He'll tell me, every, no, I don't agree with this, and I'd rather do something else. He'll do that. And every now and then Mr. Ames will sound off real loud in his big voice. And oh, and, and uh, even uh, it, it all, if you don't know him, it's almost disrespectful because he'll say it in a louder voice to be sure I hear. But he's my brother-in-law and my friend. And so he's not a yes man. And then whenever I make any mistake, even smaller mistakes, my dear friend, Mr. Partian, will catch me. And uh, so I can't fire him. He's been my friend for over 50 years. And so he will tell me. 
He's the one when I had this headache, you know, several years ago coming into the house of God to preach. I said, D-Bar, I have a really bad sinus headache. Uh, my, my head is sick today. He says, well, so what's new? And uh, <laughs> anyhow, they've been tried and tested over and over. And I appreciate that. And they've been clean. Not one of them has been a big sinner without me naming all the different kinds of sins that I know of. And I'm sure that's the case. You can just see it as you get to know them. And they're not perfect, though. And I'm not perfect. And no one is perfect. But we have men that have been through the mill a lot longer. And we're very grateful for that. And we need to be grateful for what Christ is doing through so few of us. There are very few of us. Mr. Ames and Mr. Bill Bomer and Mrs. Donna Prejean are the editorial, and Mr. Ames only has about half time because the other half is devoted to the electronic media and being a vice president and everything else. So really we have two and a half people in editorial, and they're doing what 25 to 40 people used to do in Worldwide. <laughs> That's amazing. And this guy sitting right here just works and works and just churns out the work over and over, Mr. Bomer does. And I thank God for him, too, regularly, because he's a tremendous producer. Uh, back in the Second World War, why uh, a number of the other generals were jealous of George Patton because he'd charge right through the German lines and he'd break some of the rules or whatever protocol sometimes. And they kept coming to General Marshall, who was chief of staff, to try to get General uh, Marshall, uh, General Patton fired. And General Marshall was really a great leader. He said, he says, no way. He said he wins battles, <laughs> and uh, he, he produces. <laughs> we don't fire him. <laughs> he wins battles. So that's what we have. We have a wonderful team here, without naming everybody, and none of us are perfect, but we can be thankful and try to emphasize the positive, eliminate the negative. Don't mess with Mr. In-Between, as the old song from the Second World War said. We're to think on the positive, not always the negative. Then, brethren, I want to give you three things to do about this thing. If you take notes, I hope you'll get these down. First of all, as you think about your attitude and your words, ask God Himself in prayer regularly to guide your thoughts and your words. Say, Father in heaven, as David did, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Eternal, my rock and my Redeemer. And that's the way it really should be worded. And uh, uh, actually, since I didn't have that in my notes, I'll, I'll uh, turn back here and find it. It must be Psalm 19. It's not Psalm 34. I sometimes forget between the two of them. Yeah, Psalm 19, verse 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Eternal, my rock and my Redeemer. Pray that way. Ask God to guide your thoughts and to guide your words so you say the right thing and don't hurt others with your mouth. But it all begins where? Right in between your ears, so to speak, and your thoughts and in your heart. Because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So be sure your heart is right and then the words, the wrong words won't come out near as often. Secondly, learn to think positively. As Paul emphasized here in Philippians, think positively. Try not to just think, well, there's a problem here. The problem there. Woe is me. Blah, blah, blah. Once in a while, my bones get to creaking in old, older age. I'm not very old. Mr. Party and I, you know, we've decided that old age begins at 90. Now that he's getting close, we may have to move that up to 95. 
<laughs> but anyway, when I got to say, D-bar, something's wrong, he says, think young, think young. <laughs> and so we've got to think positively. And that's very important. Think positively toward others, toward the work, toward the ministry, and toward God Himself. Not just to exalt us, but for your good. For your good. Have a positive attitude toward what Christ is doing. Thirdly, meditate on our future. Think about it deeply. All of the brethren and I are called now to be kings and priests to help straighten out this whole world in a few years and to help whole masses of people learn to love each other, to forgive each other, to get along with each other. And if we can't love each other, forgive each other, get along with each other in a right way today, how are we going to do that for them in tomorrow's world? We can't. So those are three things, three steps to take toward guiding your thoughts and bringing every thought into captivity to Christ. Now turn to Hebrews chapter 12, brethren. Hebrews, if you would, uh, chapter 12. And I'm going to begin reading. I'd like to read all of this, of course, but let's break in here with verse 14. Paul wrote, Pursue peace. You're not to stir up trouble by your mouth or any other way. Pursue peace with all men and holiness without which no one will see the eternal or see God. Looking diligently, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. I preached on that before, but remember, you must avoid a root of bitterness. And if you have a root of bitterness against God or against God's church or against the ministry or against someone else in the church, it will start to come out of your mouth. A root of bitterness. Try not to get a root of bitterness toward anybody or anything. It will destroy you. The other person may not even realize it. You're not going to destroy them. You're going to destroy you and your opportunity to be in God's kingdom. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. Don't sell your birthright short by letting these little things upset you and get you turned aside. For you know what that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. There may be a time when if you've gone too far. Don't let that happen, brethren. For you have not come to the mountain. You have not come up to Mount Sinai, just a big old hill, that might be touched and burned with fire and blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words so that those who heard it begged that the words should not be spoken to them anymore, this great display of God's physical power, for they could not endure what was commanded. It was said as much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or thrust through with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that even Moses said, who had seen God, had seen Christ, even Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. God just shook that whole area. And people were terrified at the power of the God of Israel. But you, brethren, have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. God is calling you into contact with Him and with Christ and with the true angels of God. To an innumerable company of angels and to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. You're called an association with them. To God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. You are called to have fellowship with the spirits of just men made perfect. 
that spirit essence, which is part of our mind, gives us real mind and understanding, joined with our human brain. The spirit of man, joined with the spirit of God, helps us know the difference between good and evil, and overcome the evil, and do the good, and walk with God. You are joined to people like that, you see, in spirit. The spirits of just men made perfect. All the righteous men and women, all the way from righteous Abel, clear on down through time to Abraham and to Sarah, his wife, and Moses and Samuel and David and all the great men and women of the past, you are joined to them in a spiritual sense and will be with them for all eternity, sharing, interacting with them, interacting with Christ and the Father in a family relationship. He wants you to be like them. He wants this attitude of love, of kindness, of peace, of cooperation to flow between all of us. Not a spirit, I'm going to get you or catch you or put you down with my mouth or any other way. You're called to join the spirits of just men made perfect. Made perfect how? By being fashioned and molded by God through this crucible of the human life. For we make mistakes and we have to get down on our knees and sometimes down on our face and say, God, please clean me up. Help me. Help me overcome and cry out to God. When you see people in God's kingdom, you'll know they will have been through that. If they haven't been through that, they won't be there. But you're called to join them throughout all eternity to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, where God will put His law, not do away with His law, but put His law in our hearts and minds and inward parts and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who speaks, for if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, they were sarcastic, they were murmuring and murmuring against God, they were murmuring against Moses, well, he's not perfect and we don't like him and blah, blah, blah. How much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth as he spoke like a mighty mountain, you know, in a sense, like a roaring of 10,000 thunderstorms. The earth literally shook when he spoke. But now he promises, yet once more, I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken as the things which are made, the things which cannot be shaken may remain. My brethren, don't let yourself be shaken out of God's church. Don't let yourself be shaken out of contact with the true Christ of the Bible. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace, God's spirit, God's mercy, God's character, by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Not fear as of a monster, but knowing we don't play games with God. We do not play games with God. He knows our hearts. We can't fool Him. For our God is a consuming fire. My brethren, think on that and try to let the words of your mouth and the meditations of your heart be acceptable to Christ, our rock and our redeemer.